Hi friends, John Mark here. You may have noticed that we uh, haven't recorded or put out for a, l a couple of weeks now, but life has gotten the better of us. So we've been trying to get things back on track and we should be getting back to our normal schedule the next week or so. But uh, you may notice that some of the references may be a little dated in this episode, so please just bear with us a little bit. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Midnight Book Club. I'm John Mark. And I'm Alexa. Pour yourself a stiff drink, pull up a chair, and get lost in the fantasy for a while. We're not here to talk about our cats or pirate cats, despite what we want. I feel like you're going to bring that back every episode. Do we I mean, really have to discuss it? Yes, we have to discuss it every episode. How are you not understanding this? I feel like... This might be the issue that breaks this podcast up, John Mark. I, yeah, I mean, you don't seem to be bought into my vision of pirate cats. I guess it's just hard to see it at the moment. I mean, it's, how, do you, how do you not see it? You know, you, you take a cat, you put a little three-corner hat on him. Sure. And then maybe, maybe an eye patch. Not because he needs it, but just because eye patch. You know, you can't be a pirate without an eye patch. Okay, I just don't feel like pirates are in right now who cares i know we, we are like, we, we are trendsetters to, we are avant-garde we okay? have to follow the trends as well john mark we no no we, we set our own trends look the pirates of the caribbean franchise is dead as far as i know they might come back with like a movie in like 2025 which yeah would be weird but hey i just saw this movie it's got johnny depp in it and he plays a pirate it's really cool has, has anybody Anybody seen it before? <laughs> Wait, did Michael Bolton just see Pirates of the Caribbean? <laughs> that movie's like 10 years old already. <laughs> yeah, I just don't feel like pirates are part of like the cultural zeitgeist right now. I mean, well, with the way uh, streaming platforms have been going, it might uh, it might be going that way again. But yeah, no, I think you might be right. I, I might need to, to let my... Let my dreams die a little bit. I don't know. Like, maybe there's something with a twist that you could do. Like, Twister. Pirate Cat Twister. Wait, are you talking about, like, the disaster movie from the 90s? Yes. So there's <laughs> I was not tornadoes. At all, I was not at all talking about the Hasbro board game. Okay. Pirate oh. Cat Twister. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, what do you think? You are just a, an engine of ideas. Yep, I'm I'm fully an idea man. I am not at all an execution man, as I I think you've known me long enough to to know that. Okay, okay, Bridgerton, but with cats. Oh, that's gonna make the sex scenes weird. Well, you don't need to have sex scenes. They can be like implied. They could be tasteful. Like okay, okay. You don't need to have like you could do like an like an art noir. Like cat. an art noir. Yeah, yeah. Cat you can apply scene. things. You don't need to have like You know, the funny thing is is it would probably still be less horny than the cat's movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to make something that's truly as horny as the cat's movie. And I don't know why it was so horny. I I don't know either. I think there was something about like the CGI and the art style I, and it being like human cat hybrids i it was it was weird yeah i'm not saying like it made me horny or i was horny for the cats movie 
please no one please no one take that that clip out of context sweet jesus please no (laughs) but like you know how like things can be horny they have horny energy I think most the, people agreed that the cats movie, the cats movie was had really that horny. Energy. Yes. Okay. So yeah, cats Bridgerton would also probably still be less horny. I think it could be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the cat might have more charisma than the lead of season two. So. Ooh. Oof. <laughs> that, that's some hot takes on that one. Well, I actually haven't seen season two, so I am implying Wait, is that I have two some sort out? of knowledge. No, it's coming out this Friday, which is why everyone's talking oh, about it right now. Oh, that's why everybody's talking about it right now. Oh, okay. But there was a joke in season uh-huh. one that all of like the Bridgerton brothers kind of look like the same guy, like kind of like all of the men on The Bachelor look yeah, like the same guy. Yeah, so they guy. just play it by... They just play it with one guy moving very, very quickly between roles. Yes, they look Mm, mm -hmm. almost identical. And, like, the oldest brother is supposed to be the lead for Mm -hmm. season two, which I get. But, like, I found him very much... I found him to be a wet blanket in Mm -hmm. season one. So I don't really see how that's going to change between season one and season two. But maybe I'm completely off base here. Can we all just be honest here that, that, like, really the entire reason that Bridgerton was successful was because of the immense sizzling hotness of Regé Jean-Paul. It you keep calling him Regé Jean-Paul. It is Regé Jean-Page. He is French. Regé Regé Jean-Page. It's so I think, I think it's the common consensus that Regé Jean or Regé Jean is um the reason why season one was such a hit. Yeah. Thirst. And Extreme thirst. You get a lot of people that read the book series, Bridgerton, which I believe is like eight, 10, 12 books. I have no idea how many. Oh, God. It's a Regency romance. You, okay. you know the okay. type. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of trying to imitate like the Jane Austen. Yeah. That kind of like pride and prejudice, sense and sensibility. Wait, were those all in a series? I have never read any Jane no, Austen. No, no. no, so those are not in a series, but they're kind of so. the same kind of story. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. a romance family drama set in like the early 1800s. Which, which in yeah, England. that was that was what I was tracking with those. But you could have fully told me that they were all no, in a no. series, and I would because I've never actually read them. I would have had to have been like, yeah, sure, that sounds right. Every single book of the Bridgerton series, I guess, is supposed to feature a different member of the Bridgerton family. The only problem oh. with that is that I feel like the family's very dry. Yeah. I don't think they're the main draw. Like, I think you need people mm-hmm. around them that are yep. more interesting. If if that's the route you want to go with the current so, casting, I don't find. It's one of those stories where, like, the main character is actually the bland paste, uh, the the the. The, the gesso, I, I had to remember that my, my art terms here, the gesso background that everybody, all the interesting characters are painted onto. I guess that's what it has to be. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know okay. if that was the intention, but that is the result. That is the result. <laughs> so I don't really know. I, I'm not sure if anyone's like a super big fan of the brother. Like, is there anyone that's know. like, <laughs> that guy is my like, favorite character okay honestly like anybody that's listening like 
and yeah, if you if you are like a hardcore stan of like the Bridgerton brothers, <laughs> the Bridgerton brothers, Bridgerton like brothers, a weird like seventies. Oh my god, it does like a seventies soul group. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if anyone is like a diehard stan, like let us know because I'm I'm legitimately curious now. Like I don't like I know there's Bridgerton fans out there, but like. It did kind of seem like everybody was only into it for like the main the main two characters of the first season, and I don't know as someone who's barely seen the the TV show and not at all like I once looked at a cover of the book, <laughs> like <laughs> this is my grasp on the Bridgerton series. Yeah i I would be interested to see how this one holds up. Mm. We know that sophomore seasons can sometimes Ugh. slump a little. Wait, no, that doesn't happen at all. We don't have personal experience experiencing that. We, Yeah, we have personal experience experiencing that. Yeah, genre. we do. Yeah, we, we have do. personal experience experiencing that with The Witcher. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. I The further I get out from recapping season two, like the less I remember how I thought of it in comparison to season one. I, I, I know we keep coming back a little bit, but like now that there's more time to having to been able to digest a little bit more, like the longer I'm separated from watching season two, the less I like it. <laughs> and I, that's usually, that's a very rare occurrence for me. Usually it's the other way around. Like when I first watched it, I was like, Oh, this is pretty good. This is cool. Like, and like now I'm kind of like thinking back on season two and I'm like, wow, season two was, it was kind of weak actually. <laughs> it was like pretty okay. Yeah. Pretty okay. Is kind of the best way to describe it. There were parts I liked. There were parts I really didn't like. And I'm hoping that they take into account some of the ways in which the story like slowed down and faltered Mm -hmm. and avoid those same mistakes in season three. But I know that's probably not going to happen. Um, I think Geralt is probably going to take up Jazz Tap. That'd be fun. Um, Honestly, I'd I'd watch it. But I'm a whore for the series, so... (laughs) Um, we should probably introduce ourselves and what yeah. we're doing here tonight, though. This is Midnight Book Club, The mm-hmm. Hobbits. We used to recap The Witcher, which you might be able to guess mm-hmm. if you listen to the last, you know, few minutes. Um, but now we're recapping The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. We are on chapter four. Um, I'm Alexa. Uh, and I'm John Mark. Uh, I am a Lord of the Rings super fan. Uh, so previously we had done this. Uh, Alexa was the super fan of The Witcher. I am the Lord of the Rings super fan. Um, and, and I'm along for the ride. Alexa is a fan. Um, and she's never experienced the series before. So uh, we're reading through it. Well, I've experienced something. Ex- never experienced is the wrong word. Never read I've it. I've watched <laughs> the Lord of the Rings. I've watched the Hobbit movies. This is my first full read through mm-hmm. of The Hobbit. So tonight we are doing chapter four. Um, and tonight is actually kind of a, it's kind of a, a fun one. Um, this is kind of where uh, the, the the action kind of picks up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, Interestingly enough, this is another only 10 page chapter. But it's it's definitely the very beginning of like the real adventure, I would say. Yeah, um, before we get into our summary, you can 
find us on um, Instagram at Midnight Bookcast. Mm-hmm. I don't update nearly as often as I would like, but if you DM us there, I always respond. I like hearing your thoughts. Um, and you can also support this podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Really appreciate uh, your support there. And you can also um, donate to this podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash midnightpod. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the summary. Uh, this section is what we call <laughs> the long and the skinny, the tall and the squat, tall the, and the, squat <laughs> the short and the gigantic. Narrow. I have no idea what we're what calling is, what's it this the, week. I, I forgot what the actual phrase is. The long is. and the skinny is the long and the skinny is the actual, the actual phrase. phrase. Okay. I've been saying it like like intentionally wrong and unintentionally wrong for so long that I can't remember what is up anymore. Yeah, that happens. So um, this is the part of the podcast where we recap what we read. This week, it's chapter four of The Hobbit, Underhill and Overhill. Yes. Um, So without further ado, there were many paths that led to the mountains, but many were infested by danger and evil things. The dwarves follow the advice of Elrond and the memory of Gandalf. Many days after leaving the homely house, they were still going up and up and up. They were able to look back on the lands that they traveled, including back to the Shire. Boulders came loose and rolled down the mountain, some going right over their heads, which is very terrifying. During the dark and comfortless nights, they don't dare talk too loud, as the silence doesn't seem to want to be broken. Bilbo realizes that summer is waning and that back home there was straw harvesting and blackberry picking. The dwarves realize this too. When the dwarves had left Elrond, they had talked excitedly about the journey over the mountains. They had thought they would, of course, reach the mountain by autumn, and perhaps by Durin's day. Gandalf only shook his head. He knew that evil and danger had grown since the dragons had driven out men from the land, and goblins had spread in secret since the Battle of the Mines of Moria. That may be a small hint. Mm -hmm. Even good plans from good wizards like Gandalf, and of good friends like Elrond, go astray when you're in the wild. Gandalf knows that this trip is special and different, and that they're working outside the norms of the universe. He knows something unexpected might happen, and he knows that danger might await them on their way up the mountains. Nothing had happened yet until one day when a terrifying thunderstorm breaks out. Bilbo had never seen anything like it. It's even more frightening because they are high up with a stark drop into a valley right beside them. They cling to a rock that night, and Bilbo shivers all night long. The stone giants are out and tossing rocks between themselves. The rocks are crashing all around them. And these are like literal giants. So, okay. So this is a uh, a little bit of literary fantasticism. Basically, it, it's a little bit of hyperbole on the narrator who is technically Bilbo. Um, but the stone giants may also be referring to just the mountains themselves. Um, because Bilbo has never really seen mountains before. Um, he knows of them, um, but he's never been in them. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a fantastical myth mythos of the story kind of thing. But it's also a little bit, giants don't really appear anywhere else. Like stone giants don't really appear anywhere else in like the lore of the Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is kind of something that's kind of like an anomaly, and it's one of the it's like kind of an artifact of also this being the first book that he wrote and like maybe he wanted to include some other things that he kind of forgot about maybe um 
but it also may be just kind of some like fantasticness of the narration you know right um but long story short there's rock large rocks that are falling down on their heads and it's Mm -hmm. scary um and there's a very very large storm that's going on around them um i did actually like in the movie the hobbit um they actually do animate like large giants like fighting each other over them and i thought that was just a really fun scene Mm -hmm. um completely unnecessary um not at all relevant to the plot but very very fun so Thorin says, this won't do at all. If we're not struck by lightning, we'll be picked up and thrown as a football by giants. Gandalf isn't too happy about giants himself. He says, if you know a better place, take us there. They send Philly and Killy to look for a shelter. Philly and Killy, the youngest of the dwarves, have the sharpest eyes and are usually sent out for this kind of thing. Everyone concurs there's no use in sending Bilbo. Ouch. (laughs) Ouch for my man. (laughs) Thorin says, there's nothing like looking when you want to find something. You certainly find something if you look, but it's not always the something you were after. And so it proved on this occasion. Philly and Killy came crawling back, holding on to the rocks. They say they found a cave. Gandalf asks, have you thoroughly explored the cave? They respond, yes, but everyone knows that they had returned too quickly for a full exploration. But that news seemed good enough, so the party starts to move. The wind is howling and the thunder is growing but it's not too far to go. They soon came across a large rock, and just behind it is a cave. They have to squeeze the ponies through, but they're able to all fit inside, and happy that they are sheltered from the elements and the giants. Gandalf doesn't want to take risks. He takes out his wand, and they explore the cave end-to-end. It doesn't seem too large or mysterious. It has a dry floor and comfortable rocks. Oyen and Gloyen want to start a fire at the edge of the cave to dry their clothes in front of it, but Gandalf won't allow it. So they spread their clothes on the cave floor instead. So uh, interesting little side note here. Um, a, uh, Tolkien refers to Gandalf carrying a wand here. Um, he literally uses the word wand. I checked it like three times to make sure that, that the notes were correct and that the, that the wording was correct. Um, this is like apparently one of the only times I've ever noticed that they refer to Gandalf carrying a wand here. Yeah. Um, because he's normally a staff guy. Like, in any depiction of him, he's carrying a staff. In any description of him in the books, he's referred to as carrying a staff. So I'm really curious as to this This might be like another artifact of this being early in the series and him kind of forgetting. We kind of forgot that Gandalf carried a staff. Yeah, I think that's probably most likely mm-hmm. because this is very early. I don't think it's super important. It was just a weird thing. Like I said, I, I read it like three or four times to make sure I was reading it correctly. So... Um, the dwarves and Gandalf bring out their pipes and smoke. They get to talking. They start talking about what they would do after finding the treasure, which suddenly seems more possible than ever. Then they drift off to sleep. That's the last time they use the paraphernalia from the ponies. It turned out to be a good thing they brought Bilbo, for he couldn't sleep very much. When he did, he had bad dreams about the cave. He wakes up with a horrible start and realizes that part of his dream had come true. A crack had opened up in the cave, which swallowed the ponies. Goblins jump out. Lots of them. There were six to each dwarf and at least two for Bilbo. They were all carried through the hole in an instant, but not Gandalf. Bilbo's scream had woken up Gandalf, and when the goblins came to get him, a flash appeared, striking six of the goblins dead on sight. Suddenly, the crack closes up and the dwarves and Bilbo are on the wrong side of it. It was dark, the kind of dark that only the goblins could see through. It was horribly rough, and the goblins pinched the dwarves and Bilbo mercilessly. 
Bilbo and his e- is even less happy than when the troll had picked him up by the toes. The goblins begin to sing and stomp their feet, shaking their prisoners as well. They sing the Goblin Town song. Goblin Town is like the darkest timeline version of Fraggle Rock, I think. Actually, that's kind of the vibe I definitely get from it. <laughs> because the, the I and I want to I want to like sing read the song um, because it's very sing songy and stompy clappy and it's kind of kind of fun. So uh, they sing the Goblin Town song. Clap, snap, the black crack, grip, grab, pinch, nab and down, down to Goblin Town. You go, my lad. Clash, crash, crush, smash. Hammer and tongs, knocker and gongs. Pound, pound for underground. Ho ho, my lad. Swish, smack, whip, crack. Banter, beat. Yammer, bleat. Work, work. No dare to shirk. While goblins quaff and goblins laugh. Round and round for underground. Below, my lad. And that is that is the Goblin Town song. I'm guessing they don't have a lot of Airbnb guests. I'm assuming no. They probably have a pretty low rating on Airbnb. <laughs> Uh, the towels are very scratchy. Bring and very <laughs> down to Goblin Town. <laughs> um, they sing the Goblin Town song. Their awful song echoes against the walls. The goblins take out whips and smack the dwarves and Bilbo. They stumble into a big cavern that is lit by a great red fire and torches along the walls and is full of goblins. The ponies are already in the room as well as their baggage, which is being rummaged through and fought over by goblins. That's the last they ever saw of these ponies, as goblins eat horses and donkeys, and they're always hungry. R.I.P. to the ponies yeah, and the Yeah, poor donkey. ponies. Yeah. The prisoners at the moment weren't worrying about the ponies, but for themselves. The goblins drag them to the east of the cavern, with Bilbo at the end of the row. In the shadows, a tremendous goblin sits on, the st- sits on a stone. There are goblins around him carrying bent swords. The goblins are bad-hearted. They make no beautiful things, but many clever things. They are able to tunnel like skilled dwarves, but usually their holes are untidy and dirty. Pickaxes and instruments of torture they make very well, or they get prisoners and slaves to make them on their behalf. Goblins have invented many of the inventions that tormented the world, including ingenious instruments that have killed many people at once. Engines and wheels and explosions delight them. They also hate working with their own hands and try to avoid it as much as possible. Thus the slaves. They had not yet advanced in those ways. Uh, yeah, they, they like to practice slavery and capture people and make them build things for them. So let me get this straight. Goblins eat ponies, build mm-hmm. death machines, and avid slavers. Yep, that's about the size of it. Great. Mm-hmm. They really didn't hate dwarves in particular. Just everybody and everything. Like, that was the only line I could really relate to. Yeah, I mean, same, honestly. I I don't hate dwarves in particular, just everybody and everything. Uh, Wicked dwarves had even made alliances with the goblins in the past, but goblins did not particularly like Thorin and his men because of the war. That doesn't really come into this tale. Um, Because, so if you remember, the goblins were the original inhabitants of the Mountain of Erebor. Um and when the dwarves settled in Erebor, they were driven into Moria. And eventually, I believe the dwarves pushed the goblins out of Moria as well, um, but then the goblins took it back eventually. Okay, so no love lost between Thorin's men no. and the goblins. <laughs> nope. Goblins don't care who they catch as long as it's done in secret. The great goblin asks, who are these people? 
dwarves. We found them in our front porch, one goblin responds. What were they doing, the great goblin asks. Spying, thieving, what else, the goblin responds. Thorin says they sheltered from the storm here. That was it. They had no intentions in mind to harm goblins. The great goblin expresses doubt. He asks why they're even in the mountains. He wants to know all about them, though he knows too much about Thorin and his kin already. Thorin says they were on a journey to visit their distant family who live in the east of the mountains. Not technically incorrect. He is not sure what to say, and he knows the truth will not do in this case. One goblin says that Thorin is a liar. Several of his people are struck by lightning and are dead as stones. Several of his people were struck by lightning, and they are dead as stones. They say he has not explained this and and hands the great goblin Thorin's sword. They knew the sword at once. It had killed many a goblin when the men of Gondolin hunted them in the hills. The goblins called it Biter. They hated it, but more than that, anyone who carried it. The great goblin demands revenge against the dwarves. Just then, everything goes dark and the fire is blown out. It spread white sparks among the goblins. All of the shrieking and striking that followed are beyond comprehension. The sparks were burning holes in the goblins, and even they are not able to see through it. Suddenly, Bilbo sees a sword come out of the smoke and cleave into the great goblin. The sword then goes into its sheath. Follow me, a fierce voice says. Bilbo follows, and they find a pale light. The torches will soon be relit, a voice says. They all go off on a run, with many a clank and stumble. They did not stop for a long while, and by then they were down in by the mountain's heart. It was Gandalf all along. They're too busy to ask how he got there. Well, how does he get anywhere? Exactly. He's just always there. He's just there, or not, or not there. there. <laughs> yeah. The sword gleams with a blue flame, delighting in the killing of the great goblin. Gandalf uses it to free them all. He thinks of most things, and while he could not do everything, he can do a great deal for friends in a tight corner. Yeah, he's uh, usually at the right place at the right time. He usually is. Yep. Thorin does a head count and finds that everyone is accounted for. Thorin says it could be worse, but it could be better. No ponies, no supplies, and hordes of angry goblins behind us. So basically the Oregon Trail. Yeah, basically. There's no dysentery yet. 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 Oh, well, let's move on. Soon they begin to hear angry goblin noises behind them. The dwarves move fast. Though Bilbo lags, the dwarves begin carrying Bilbo on their backs. Goblins are moving faster than the dwarves. Goblins are moving faster than the dwarves as they had made the paths themselves and were pretty angry. The party hears the cries get louder and louder. They can hear many, many feet and see the light and torches. Goblin noises intensify. Goblin noises intensify. I mean, that's literally basically what it just said a minute ago. (laughs) The dwarves are getting incredibly tired. Bilbo wonders why he ever left the hobbit hole. Why did I ever bring a hobbit on a treasure hunt, Bomber wonders. Bomber who's carrying. Bomber who is carrying Bilbo (laughs) as he carries Bilbo on his back. Gandalf and Thorin fall behind intentionally, hiding behind a corner. There was nothing else to be done, and the goblins didn't like that. They come scurrying around the corner in full cry and find goblin, cleaver, and foe hammer before them. Gandalf and Thorin fall behind intentionally, hiding behind a corner. There was nothing else to be done, and the goblins didn't like that. They come scurrying around the corner in full cry and find goblin, cleaver, and foe hammer before them. The first wave of goblins are killed in quick succession. The ones behind retreat. They soon fall into confusion and fall back to the way that they've come. It was a long while before any were courageous enough to turn the corner again, as they are afraid of the mythical weapons that await them. 
The dwarves are able to use that time to escape into a tunnel. The goblins send out their fastest runners who travel like weasels and nearly silently. No one hears them coming. Dory is carried off by the goblins and Bilbo hits his head on a hard rock and remembers nothing more. So Dory was taking his turn carrying Yeah, yes. Bilbo. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so some clarification here. Uh, first off, and scene. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So a little clarity here um, because the language of it isn't super clear. Um, so the, they're being pursued by the goblins. Uh, they round a corner. Uh, Gandalf and Thorin stay behind um, to to ambush the oncoming goblins. Um, they jump out, kill the first couple of goblins that come around the corner. All the other ones run backwards and try to clamor over the the oncoming horde of goblins. Um, all the chaos kind of drives them back around the corner in fear. Um, and they kind of stay around the corner. They're kind of too afraid to come back around. Otherwise, they're going to get stabbed in the face kind of thing. Yeah. Um, this was this gives them enough time, the dwarves enough time to go down another tunnel um, and kind of escape a little bit. The goblins didn't like that. Um, so the goblins sent out basically scouts um, to try and catch up with them uh the scouts however uh decide to go full body snatcher and uh while everyone's kind of resting and catching their breath um the goblins start grabbing people um dory who was now the one carrying bilbo so uh bomber had given dory bilbo to carry um was carrying bilbo the goblins basically grab his legs and drag him into the darkness not realizing that Bilbo was on his shoulders. <laughs> yeah. Bilbo falls off, gets knocked unconscious, and that's the end of the chapter. Yeah. I, I like that Bilbo is just this shared burden that all of them yeah. have to just pass <laughs> back and forth. It's it's actually really interesting. Um, well, actually, before we go any further, should we just transition into our, our saved rounds and alibis? Yeah, this is Last Call. Mm -hmm. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about our takeaways from the chapter as well as Our feelings and our meanings and analysis is intense. 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 Yeah, it's a fun time. Um, So that's kind of... You you raise an interesting point because that is kind of a little bit of Bilbo's journey and his growth as a character Mm -hmm. is that he actually does kind of start out being carried by the party, both literally, literally and metaphorically. Right. Um, he's, he's literally a burden. And then more towards the end of the chapter, as his character arc is more complete, um, he ends up being the one that kind of carries and saves the party many, many times. Yeah. And we've seen him in unexpected ways save the party Mm -hmm. like he's smart he's able to hide he's able to be quiet he's kind of stealthy he plays that rogue yes yep archetype yep um but i think it's a little hard for everyone to see the value of bilbo Mm -hmm. when they're running from a threat like the goblins yeah when there's a wave of fucking goblins coming at your face which is fair you don't necessarily want the dude who's like two feet tall and can hide behind bushes really good <laughs> like, yeah, no, and, and he's not really what was sold to them i think that like they were kind of expecting one thing mm-hmm. and like you know bilbo shows up and it's like 
okay, what is this? What do we do with I, this? I think they were expecting like a Johnny Depp, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. real swaggery, going to lead the party kind of thing. And they got they got Bilbo, like the the little mousy guy who's just like screaming behind the party that and like terrified of yeah, everything <laughs> that I never should. I, I really just wish I could have a cup of tea right now. Which is fair. Um, I think that Bilbo is showing that he has value, but I still think that the dwarves haven't seen that just yeah, yet. Yeah. Well, because they haven't they haven't really been in a situation that really value that really necessitates necessitates it too much. Um, they ha- you know the only time that Bilbo has really been like useful was when he was creeping on the trolls. Right, and then he got everybody. Well, I don't, I don't, I can't remember if it was him that got everybody caught. They all got caught, anyways. So it was kind of a moot point, you know. It was a moot point. It was a moot point. It was a cow's opinion. <laughs> um, yeah. So, like I said, this this is this was kind of a fun chapter. It, it is definitely the beginning of the adventure bits. Um. So, and I think the the next portion, the next chapter, I'm really really excited for. Um, and we'll see why later, but, yeah. um, this is, this is just kind of like the intro and the setup for that. And you can, when you know where it's going, you can kind of see a little bit and I'm going to try and do, maybe I'll try and do some more voices for the, for the voices next chapter. Are, fun. are they, uh, have I been doing the Gandalf you voice? You have been doing the Gandalf okay. voice. Okay. I don't know if you have a distinct voice for, uh, Thorin. I, Thorin's a hard one. Because it's kind of not that different from Gandalf, so I didn't really... I had tried to do a voice when we were reading it, but he doesn't really have anything kind of distinct going on. Um, He's just kind of... He's just very serious. Gandalf, on the other hand, is a much deeper, more intense voice. Mm. Um, But I kind of feel like it's just like me with a cold. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm trying to distinguish it a little bit. One of the themes of this chapter is definitely like sort of waning confidence and like mm, mm-hmm. the mission of the party. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's taking a lot longer than I think anyone would have expected. Mm-hmm. I think everyone sets off from Homely House and, you know, whatever, Elrond's House of Whimsy is what I yes, ended up El- calling Elrond's it. Elrond's House of Whim- Whimsy, which I absolutely love. And they set off with all these plans mm-hmm. and direction, and they're like, "Oh, what could possibly go wrong?" Yeah, we're like, gonna we're gonna take back the mountain. We're gonna like go and and do the thing, and then like it starts raining, and they're <laughs> out in the rock scree, and it's cold, and they don't have anything to sleep on but rocks, and, and they're going up like a forty five percent incline at mm-hmm, all times. Mm-hmm. It's just really a drag. Yeah. Yes. And it seems like no matter how far they go, they're not any closer to their destination. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's definitely kind of a, a good metaphor for like the early midpoint of like a, any journey. Um, you do kind of run into like that level of like slog. Um, having done hiking trips and things like that before, I realize not quite the same, but it's pretty similar. Um, you know, doing some long hikes and things like that where like, the halfway mark is really easy because you're like, oh, yes, I'm halfway done. Yeah. Um, but it's that like f- finishing of the first quarter that you're like, wow, this is hard. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's another three quarters of this to go. And I'm already not having a good time. So I guess we just need to keep going. 
Yeah. yeah. And the, and there's not much of an option because they're kind of on a time sensitive quest, which is why I think another reason why their hopes are diminishing is mm-hmm. because they kind of thought that they would be on track to be there by autumn, like yeah, in by yep. Durin's day, whatever that means. I'm, I'm assuming really... they kind of said like September-ish, I want to say. But they don't even know what mm-hmm, Durin's mm-hmm. day is exactly. They're just like kind of hoping to like find it as they go along. Yeah, yeah. But they, they so they started out in like May or June um, and like they're, they're hoping they're going to be there by like September. Right. And now it's like maybe late july august and the days of summer are waning yeah and it's like okay we only have like a month another month so. to go yeah yep. and this is taking a lot of time and but, we're we're not even through the mountains <laughs> like yeah which is why the storm i think is very unwelcome and everyone's very upset because mm-hmm. it's like this is the last thing we need right now yeah, it's like another yep. setback yeah and i also really like the scene where like they they say to gandalf like oh we should be there by by september and gandalf, and gandalf just like <laughs> so I, I i like that gandalf like shakes his head there um because i think the implication was that i think he realized that they'll be lucky if they get there by next september <laughs> Right. Um, and I think that was the implication. He He's like, yeah, I think you guys don't realize what the original timeline was, do you? <laughs> like, at yeah. all. <laughs> like, that is not doable. Yeah, like, Gandalf just stays silent and knows things. And I think that he just lets things play out mostly. And he's there when, like, shit hits the fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely, like, a, a little bit of a gonzo journalist, but still kind of a journalist in that regard. <laughs> Yeah, he's like a nature documentarian. Yeah. He's like, I'm not going to intervene too much. I, I can't <laughs> intervene. I got. I have to let the leopard at least come close to getting the gazelle. But he's a bad documentarian yes. because eventually <laughs> when things get bad enough, he is going All to All right, intervene. I got to save the gazelle. <laughs> like You do feel a little of their, um, their disappointment, their... Um, their despair in this chapter mm-hmm. and like possibly not reaching that goal. Yeah. They may, they may be kind of starting to see it a little bit and a little bit of like what I was kind of getting at with the being like through the first quarter is that also when you're not at the halfway point, there's still that like, I'm only about a quarter of the way through this. I could just turn back. Yeah. It'd be really comfortable to just go home and like be in bed right now. Well, we tried. We tried. We got like a quarter of the way there. And like you're still close enough to the start that like it it's still feasible. Once you get to the halfway point, you're like, all right, I'm at the halfway point. The rest of it should be downhill from here. You know what I mean? Should be. Should be downhill. <laughs> Will it be? Probably yeah, probably not. not. <laughs> um some hikes it is literally downhill from the from there. Um <laughs> So <laughs> no, no, nobody. Okay. Uh, I'll no, see myself crickets. out. Um, so when the storm erupts and they're able to find some kind of shelter, it feels like a major win, mm-hmm. which is why it's all the more disappointing when it ends up being kind of a trap. It's literally like the front door of like the goblin like town, the goblin town stronghold, <laughs> like 
It's literally the front door of Goblin Town. Yes. Um, like, here's this nice place that we can sleep safely, mm-hmm. except no, the goblins are going to jump out in the middle of the night. Middle and, of the night. Uh, yep. Yeah. It's not going to be a fun time for anyone. Oh, it turns out there's there's a, a magic door the, in the back of the cave that opens up and lets goblins out. Love that. For <sighs> Love <us>. that. <laughs> it's a great spot to camp, guys. <laughs> Only slightly goblin infested. Bilbo seems to be the most sensitive to these vibes. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know why that is. I think a lot of it also is that, once again, he's never left the Shire. Um, Literally, like, the scariest thing that he has ever encountered is probably, like, an unusually large rabbit. Right. And so now he's suddenly, like, contending with these basically, like impish demon things that reside in darkness at all times um do you think because like because it could go either way like when you're kind of sheltered like that and mm -hmm. you live a life that is relatively tame i guess in situations that could be dangerous you're a little more on edge but also like because you haven't encountered that you might not know what to look for but it seems like bilbo knows that something is off yeah yeah and that can that can work both ways you know you you could have not experienced that thing so you you're too dumb to be scared (laughs) um but then you could have also not experienced that thing and just be overly scared because you have never experienced it before and you don't know I feel like predatory, like animals, even though goblins aren't really described as animals, um, but they are animal-like in their appearance and things and behaviors, um, I think are kind of like a universally recognized thing. Like if something, if, if, if a thing jumps out of the dark at you with like eight inch big bug eyes, uh, pointy ears and sharpened teeth and starts hissing at you, you're probably going to be pretty afraid of it either way. Like even if it's like actually a fraggle like and they're actually like super friendly they want to just like cook you dinner but not for dinner they want to cook you dinner i mostly was talking about the fact that he had bad dreams beforehand yeah yeah um and he he definitely is very perceptive to like like you said like vibes Mm -hmm. um that really is kind of the best way to describe it um I don't think there's really much else that's given in the in the implications or foreshadowing other than he's just I think because he's been sheltered uh, I think he just picks up on like this is creepy like sleeping in a cave is creepy even though I sleep underground all the time. Um <laughs> <laughs> this is not my this hobbit is, hole. This is not my beautiful hobbit hole. <laughs> this is not my beautiful hobbit wife. <laughs> yeah, like it seems that Bilbo is kind of good as this like canary in the coal mine. Yeah, actually, for, like when things are yes, off. Yes. Um, and I think that it's his fear and his trepidation that kind of leads them to being a little bit more prepared. Yeah. Yeah. At least waking up like a split second before they would have. Yeah. Which yeah. Which makes all the difference. Yeah. Yes, it does. Um. Yeah. So like, it, it's definitely. I, I do also kind of think that Gandalf may have kind of known that that a little bit about Bilbo as well, mm-hmm. um, that he just kind of like, um, it, yeah, Canary in the Coal Mine, like you said, I think is probably the best way to describe him is just that like, yeah, it, we're going to take this little this little house cat <laughs> 
and take him out on this grand adventure <laughs> through the wilds. Um, and we're going to listen to when he freaks out. That's how we know that we need to like pay attention to things. So question, like, because we talked about Gandalf kind of knowing how things play out, mm-hmm. um, understanding that certain things are going to happen. Do we think he knew that they were going to run into the goblins? I think he knew that they were going to go into the mines of Moria. I think one yeah. way or another, I think his intent was to try and take them over the mountains, but that is much, much harder. Um, and over the mountains, they would be more likely to go unnoticed. Right. But I think he kind of very much knew that, like, more than likely they're going to end up going into the into the mines one way or another, whether they're captured and dragged in there or they find a door and everybody gets the bright idea to just walk in. Or they stumble in and get dragged in. <laughs> I think he I think he kind of thought it was coming. But he didn't know kind of the specifics of how. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, like, there's no way from examining the cave to know exactly. It didn't seem like it. Um, and I think, like, I think he was trying to avoid it. Um, or at least, like, I think he was trying to avoid having that choice made for him. Um, so I think like if it came up like uh, the, or they found a door or something and like people were like, yeah, we should go through. I think he was going to be like, all right, well, let's talk about that. But like we need to decide if that's a thing that we want to do rather than just being grabbed and dragged in. Um, so I think he was really hoping that that cave was actually just a cave. Um, also, there's no description as to like whether or not the, the crack that opens up is magic or not in any way. Um, it's just that apparently nobody noticed it. So it opened up and goblins came out and then it closed back up when they grabbed the dwarves. So, yeah, I guess we just have to accept that. Yeah. They didn't explain if it was like mechanical or like it just the, the crack in the rock opened. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes it'd be like that. Sometimes cracks in rocks just open up and then close back up magically, but maybe not magically. I don't know. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, so let's talk about the goblins. Mm-hmm. Our first introduction to goblins. And we yes. learn a lot about them. That they're evil. Yep. Slimy. Yep. Yep. Terrible. Mm-hmm. Pony eater. Slave having. Yep. And how they're basically just stand-ins for any like non-European race that you know exists on the planet. But anyways. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, huh. yeah. 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 That's there. <laughs> um, I should do some like actual scholarly research on that and like figure out how to like properly approach that conversation. But yeah, this is our first introduction to goblins within the literature. Um, and they they seem a little bit more. Uh, so this is another one in. They seem more hierarchical mm-hmm. um, in this than in the trilogy. The trilogy, there are a lot more followers, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they're followers of the the Dark Lord, etc. Um, whereas in this, they kind of they have their own system of governance. They have a king, goblin, who's yeah, not how does who's that not work? David Bowie. <sighs> <laughs> does does he have like a divine right, or like how does that appointment work, or is it more of like a warrior king thing, where like they expect? I mean, they elect, like, the the best warrior to their... Alexa, why are you asking questions? 
I don't know. I'm just I'm trying to figure out the structure. <laughs> they do. They do mention. A, they do call him the king. So I mean, that would be like a dynastic monarchy. Well, he could be a king in a lot of senses. Like he could be. He could be a metaphoric king. He could be like Elvis was king. Mm, mm. I I don't know. Maybe he's just a really cool guy. Or maybe I I think I think you might kind of have the, they because they describe him as like the bigger goblin that's sitting on the, the rock. Bigger goblin. Yeah, <laughs> like I I think that might be the one that like he might just be the might makes right guy. Yeah. So we learn a lot about like goblins and their relationship with dwarves and like who they are. Um, I find it interesting because I think goblins and dwarves are kind of two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I think that dwarves are probably like the better of the two, but Mm -hmm. it also seems like there's a lot more fluidity there than... I think Thorne and his men would want so, to admit. There's also you could you could there's also a lot of a lot of literature to support the idea that the dwarves are just stand in for uh Jewish people. Yeah. Um and a lot of those stere- Jewish stereotypes. Um because they kind of have a lot of similar stereotypical characteristics. Um a st- uh, additionally like the narrative of like them being displaced from their ancestral home kind of fits into the the narrative of like uh the 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 Jews returning to Israel after uh after or during World War II I want to say I know that yeah. like J.R.R. Tolkien had always talked about you know he doesn't like allegory he doesn't mm-hmm. want to be interpreted as like everything had like a root in a real world example. Yeah. Yeah. But that only goes so far because every writer is influenced by (laughs) the circumstances that they grow up in and like the things that they witness because we can't just pull things out of nowhere. Right. Yes. As as any, any form of art is going to be a, 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 reflection of the times that it is produced in and a lens been created by the lens of the time with which it was created. Um, So those things start to creep in when mm -hmm, you're creating, mm -hmm. you know, these races and these histories. And and I'm sure you think that, you know, this isn't, this is a unique creation, Mm -hmm. but you're pulling in your own biases and your own thoughts and worldview so I think that even though J.R.R. Tolkien maybe didn't think that he was basing this on any one kind of mm-hmm. person or like race or, you know, plight, there's definitely that in in here. Oh, absolutely. It's it's impossible to create things like this entirely in a vacuum. Um and that is kind of a lot of a lot of it. Um and we kind of tried, you know, one of one of the reasons why, like, Tolkien is kind of given a little bit of a pass is that, like, the and, and why he kind of stays in the realm of, like, fantasy and not, like, serious literature um, is often because of the fact that he uses non-humans as the source of conflict. Um, but then there's also commentary to be made there that, like, you know, these non-humans are basically just stand-ins for other races and other non, uh, 
you know, similar cultures, you know, or non-recognizable Western cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that can be, that can be a real creepy, like slope to, to delve into. Um, but it's kind of like, I want to say he's, he's somewhat given a pass for this, like I said, because he just kind of tried to, he tried to sidestep the whole conversation. Um, but it is one of the things that does kind of still keep it out of being like a, like a serious literary narrative versus like a, a fantasy novel. Um, but these, these, these messages and these ideas and these imageries are, are there like whether, whether he wants them to be or not. Yeah. Um, which is one of the one of the reasons why it's really interesting to come from something like like The Witcher, which we keep going back to. But, um, you know, talk about what you know. Um, this is comparative literature, folks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is. Um, it's it's interesting going from a series like that uh, to a series like this where. So Anse Safowski, um, who wrote The Witcher, basically fully acknowledged all of his influences and straight up like lifted things. Um, but he, he did it with intent. Um, and that was like part of the thing that he was literally trying to blend in. Mm -hmm. He pulled from local folklore. He pulled from, you know, world histories and, you know, oral narratives and things like that. And like combined them into his own work. Um, that he just kind of used a lot of those things for flavor and spice for lack of a better description. Um, whereas Tolkien basically was trying to, like I said, completely skirt the issue. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Mm-hmm. And I also kind of wonder, um, not to cut you off cause I think you're probably about to make a really good point, but I think their lenses are different as authors. And I'm wondering how much, Tolkien as someone who you know is in England mm-hmm. and is not part of an oppressed culture or race I think he has a different experience versus Anse Sapkowski mm-hmm. who is Polish um, yes Poland has a very long history of being subjugated by multiple groups Wh- whoever whoever was around at the time um, yes and I think I think there's also something to be said, and I just kind of put this together now, in that Tolkien was pre World War II mm-hmm. or current world with World well, War II. Well, he was like fighting he during was, World yes. War One, wasn't he? Yes, you are correct. Um, so he, yes, he was he was fighting in World War One, and basically was alive during World War Two writing these books after post world war one and like mid world war two ish somewhere in there. Um, Anse is a child of his generation. Basically mm-hmm. um, there's a, there's actually probably about a half generation in there somewhere, but we can chalk that up to war, but you can probably block them into roughly greatest generation and children of the greatest generations like time frame. Um, it wouldn't be a, too much of a stretch to say that. And so a lot of that may be, a lot of this may be coming down to the way that these generations handle um, perspective on, on things. And we were actually just talking about this the other night. Um, we were watching a documentary on uh, a man who was in the Marines in World War II and how like 
both of us had grandparents who were uh, greatest active, generation. active, you know, in in active combatants in World War Two, and we had both talked about how they kind of d- never really talked too much about it, and one of the ways that they dealt with trauma was if I don't talk about it, it can't bother me. Um, and that was kind of a generational thing with greatest generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tolkien, I would say is probably very much of that same mindset that like, I am writing these things as a means of escape and a means of evasion and a means of, um, distraction from the real issues that I don't actually want to talk about. Um, and yeah. I think a lot of that may be, there may be a lot of overflow of these ideas and these things that, you know, uh, of processing these traumas from a larger, you know, generational standpoint. Sapkowski is of the next generation of children of the greatest generation, um, where he himself was not a combatant within one of these conflicts. Um, but would have very heavily seen a lot of the the results and the fallout of of them um and would be very very heavily influenced on that so his is a direct steering in to dealing with these issues mm-hmm. and r- talking about them within a narrative context um and so the it's very interesting because they're they're using both using the fantasy media to do ostensibly the same thing mm-hmm. but one is intentional and one is not intentional yeah that's very interesting i also think they have different perspectives on storytelling mm-hmm. tolkien is definitely influenced by things around him and yeah. like clearly is a is a big fan of storytelling and like you know incorporating like folk legends and culture Mm -hmm. but i think Ansei's hyper aware of that and he's intentionally including all of this stuff yeah like he's less interested in inventing Mm -hmm. and he's more interested in reinventing yes and and now i I, we we say all that and and i will say that tolkien was very very heavily like in into different cultures and different languages and different different histories um, but I think he was really kind of trying to create his own thing um, yeah. on so many of it. And he um, did. I mean, he succeeded. He oh, yes. created <laughs> a completely different genre yes. that we're still using today. Yes. Um, that definitely The Witcher was inspired by. Mm-hmm. I just think it's interesting how like one is clearly in- interested in like carving out something from kind of nothing. Yeah. Yep. And... I think Ansei's like, well, kind of the more like postmodernism take where yeah. this stuff has been done. How can we like redo it? How, how can... can we like disrupt it? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I hate the word disrupt, but you know what I mean? No, no. Like, that, that's I, that, Honestly, that's a really good way to describe it because Ansei was writing in the mid 90s and a lot of these literary mechanisms had already been or well, um, a lot of these tropes and narratives had already been around for well, at that point, 40 some odd years. Mm-hmm. Um, literally, he wrote uh, the beginnings of the, the, the Witcher novels to, uh, for inclusion in a, in a fantasy-based magazine um, right. that included short stories uh, within, with a fantasy intent. So, yeah, it, like it, it is absolutely like a completely different take on things. 
And I, I really do. I mean, obviously, this is comparative literature. That's what what the whole point of the whole damn thing is, is that you use one thing to uh, illustrate the the differences in the other. Um, so it's really interesting to take like a later on more. I don't want to say refined. That's not the right word. A more complicated and and evolved mm-hmm. version of the thing. And then look at the original root of the thing, um, and you can you can kind of see where all of it kind of started, and like a lot of the ideas that came that came out, and where they were coming from, and what they were trying to do. Yeah, we're kind of moving backwards in a way. Yes, we are absolutely looking backwards <laughs> on like, all of this. We delved into something that very much was built on mm-hmm. this foundation, but had a lot of other elements and had the benefit of hindsight, which is great a great thing to have as an author. Like he had a lot of things to look back on. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a lot of decades to understand like what happened after World War II and a lot of different influences. But this is sort of like back to basics and understanding like what is the thing that he was, you know, working off of. Yeah, like this is basically the equivalent of like um, we just did a whole like essay on like Led Zeppelin and classic rock in the 70s. And now we're going back to like Chuck Berry (laughs) and like for anybody that that are, you know, any music nerds out there. um, Yeah, we're kind of we're we're working in reverse here um, going going in our progress of of things. But I think it kind of works that way because a lot of times you can't really necessarily see the relevance in the in the root of the thing mm-hmm. um, until you see its end result. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting way to work, um, but I, I'm enjoying it. So back to the story. Yeah, yeah, back to uh, <laughs> back to the actual topical. story. <laughs> um, so we learn about the goblins. Mm-hmm. And we learn they kind of hate everything and everyone, and they they enjoy like same, same bad things. You know, relatable. They enjoy, you know, weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. slavery, killing mm. ponies. I mean, yeah. like all the bad things. Yeah. And they have historically gotten along with some dwarves, but they really don't like Thorin. Yeah, um, and I think a lot of that comes from the idea the. And they, they, they bring it up that they recognize that sword that he just happened to get yeah, like, weird. in the last like he got it like two weeks ago. And they're like, oh, hey, we know that fucking sword like that guy. That thing has killed thousands of us. Like, why do you have it? <laughs> like, yeah. And like Thorne doesn't really have a great explanation for this. I found it. Which is true. He, he did. Yeah. Yeah. But he's coming here saying, like, I'm on the way to my grandmother's house. I mm, mm-hmm, don't have any mm-hmm. business with goblins. And so you're telling me you, the descendant of Thoror. Yeah. Uh, who drove all of our ancestors out of Erebor. Mm-hmm. Um, we caught you uh, coming through our territory, uh, heading to the west, heading west. Um, and you're not doing anything to fairy. Oh, and you also have this really legendary, like goblin killing sword. Complete coincidence. Mm-hmm. It's a funny story. Yeah, I bet. Anyway, I just want to take uh, my weapon, get out of your hair. 
Yeah, I'm going to need you to not do that. Um, yeah, like I, it, it, it looks, it, it, it smells suspicious as hell. <laughs> Um, like maybe Thorin would have eventually gone after the goblins. I don't think he was really looking for this no. right now. Like <laughs> not he, right now. Like got other things to worry about. Mm-hmm. Like we were just kind of pulled into this. We we're just looking for like some shelter. We literally were just trying to find a place to dry off. Sorry, we came into your house. <laughs> Sorry, it happened to be on your porch. Sorry, we built a fire on your porch also. Well, they didn't actually Yeah, I know, build I know they didn't fire. actually well. build a fire. They wanted to. But interestingly enough, that actually probably would have kept the goblins away because they're very sensitive to light. Yeah. Well, they have, they no, have they a have, fire. They have, they have torches, don't they? Yeah. They just light the dark. Huh. They do. But also they have torches. Okay. Now I'm a little confused here. Which one is it, Tolkien? Which one is it? Huh? Um... So, yeah, like, it's interesting because I think we see the differences between the goblins and the dwarves and especially between the goblins and Thorn's men. Mm. And his dwarves are just a little bit different. But it, it illustrates sort of the history of, like, Thorin's plight and, mm-hmm. like, how the goblins play into it and how the goblins are pretty nefarious. It's And it, it does a really fantastic job of in in 10 10 pages um coloring the world in in a lot of ways um we do kind of see like a lot of the brutalism that exists within the world um and how even though the goblins are you know i mean they're literally we're, we're told that they're the bad guys and then they eat the ponies so we kind of assume yes they're probably the bad guys um but even then we see that they kind of have the same plight too Um, that they were driven out of their homes um, way back when, and they they had a claim on it as well. So, you know, who's in the right here, man? Yeah. I I think that Tolkien is very much trying to emphasize the the bad parts because we can only have one race that we empathize with here. Yes, exactly. (laughs) We got to, like, throw some things in there that we really don't like. Uh, Pony eaters, slavery. (laughs) What else do we have? Uh, Sharp teeth. Uh, Oh, uh, like to eat ponies. Yep. yep, Yeah, uh, like pineapple on pizza. Hey, hey now. (laughs) Getting getting too personal here. Uh, So... I think that we're only allowed to empathize with uh, with the dwarves right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to want to empathize with the goblins, but, you know, yeah, they are ostensibly the same thing. It's, a sen- it's ostensibly the same storyline that the dwarves are experiencing, the difference being that, like, goblins are bad-hearted, as the author tells us. But once again, this is, theoretically, this is Bilbo telling the story, so, yeah. you know... Uh, history is written by the victors so like you know maybe he's gonna make them look like bad guys maybe the goblins just wanted to you know maybe keep peace in the land and not reawaken the dragon maybe i mean yeah. they, they probably have a valid point there's there's a book to be written from the goblin from the goblin perspective, perspective? I, ooh, that sounds fun honestly <laughs> huh i might have to do that sometime anyways so Gandalf kills a guy. <laughs> Gandalf killed a couple guys. Yeah, struck like, him dead uh, with lightning. Yeah, he, we really see what he's capable of here. Yeah, <laughs> and he's able to cause a lot of distraction and a mm-hmm. lot of chaos, and and use that to his benefit. This is yeah, we this um, 
so we don't see a ton of like Gandalf's actual like abilities in the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but like we're kind of told that he's very, very powerful and we do like it's it's more than just tell don't don't show. There's there's some show there, but not as much. We see some really cool shit that Gandalf does in The Hobbit. Um, and this was this was one, probably one of my favorite depictions of of like him um, was just coming in out of the smoke and just like you see the blue sword light up and like it, it's like that scene in Star Wars where like mm-hmm. the smoke rolls in and in in the in the corridor and like you hear Vader's music uh, pipe up and then the the lightsaber kicks on. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's really it's, cool. it's basically exactly the same scene. Yeah. I think we see Gandalf is able to use a lot of tools and a lot of misdirection, which he also used with the trolls. He's Mm -hmm. able to kind of use that here. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's able to kind of like hide in plain sight, appear where he's needed, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do things in the nick of time. Um, So I really enjoy that we are able to see him exemplify that here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He, he gets cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it is absolutely awesome to see like what he can do. And um, interestingly enough, I think we forget that his sword glows when goblins are around also. That's cool though. Yeah. Well, cause like they talk about that for Bilbo's sword uh, so much um, later in the trilogy and in the book. I, I don't think they, they mention it in the, in the trilogy. Anyways, but they also, he also said that Gandalf was carrying a wand in this in this chapter. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. inconsistencies all over the place. All over the place. Yep. So we end this chapter in a bit of a cliffhanger. On a bit yeah. of a cliffhanger. It, it was a cliffhanger. Um, Bilbo's unconscious. Yeah, Bilbo's unconscious. We know that the goblins have started grabbing mm-hmm. some of the dwarves mm-hmm. and. Um, they're kind of in a bad place. They've lost the ponies, um, their supplies. So, like, we kind of don't know what's next for the party. Yeah, um, we are kind of literally and metaphorically in the dark. Um, But I think that's going to lead right into where we're going to go next chapter, and it's so much fun. Which is a longer chapter. It is. Well, it's longer for The Hobbit. What was it, like 20 pages? Yeah, it's a downright novella. Mm, Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, so these chapters. But I'm I'm so excited, and I think there's going to be a lot more voices in our future. Well, we are introduced to someone I think that you think have my, a pretty good voice for. I do, I do, and I think I think our Witcher listeners may have heard it before in the past, but um, and it's I think Milkaforts. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> surprise! <laughs> you thought you had gotten rid of me. <laughs> he keeps popping. He up. does keep popping back. Uh, well, once you create a character like that, I mean, I know, it, I know, it's hard to like reel him back in. Yeah, yeah, he's he's very dramatic, and he comes out the at the most inconvenient times. So. But uh, I think I think most of our listeners have probably figured out what's coming down the pike for uh, for the next chapter. But until next time, I think the fire is getting a little low, and uh, I need to go talk to Disney about pitching a new uh, children's TV movie, made for TV movie uh, called Goblin Town. Goblin um, Town. It is kind of a kind of a kind of a retelling of Halloween Town, but entirely with goblins. Down um, in Goblin Town. 
bathing's for another day. <laughs> I was like, I know, I know what the real words are to that song, but I was like, I'm trying to make them goblin specific, and it's not really coming that easy. Anyways, until next time, I'm John Mark. And I'm Alexa. Good night. Good night.